Amen. You may be seated. I can tell by the look of fear on some of your faces that you've already looked at the handout in your worship guide, and you've counted, and you've noticed that there are 31 points in today's sermon, and uh, I can tell that you're probably also thinking, I wonder if, uh, if I make a run for the door, if anybody will notice, uh, but I promise I will not keep you much longer than we're used to, but um, there are really only seven points, so don't, don't really get too worried. Um, we're going to make it through Deuteronomy 23 through 25 this morning. You know, I've heard it said uh, more times than I can count, um, maybe at least on one or two hands, um, that there is just no respect in this millennial generation. And I promise I'm not taking offense because I'm of that millennial generation. I would, in fact, agree with you, um, but I would actually go a step further. And I would say that it's not much different in a lack of respect, from the generation that gathered at Woodstock in 1969 with hands full of illegal drugs and where clothing was optional, or a lot different from the 1920s when flapper girls, indoor smoking, and public drunkenness became commonplace, or the 1950s when nude magazines appeared on shelves in uh, stores and boomed with popularity. The, The point that I'm making is that disrespect has been a problem in all spheres of our lives Since our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, um, it's been an issue that that man will be disrespectful in in, in every area that man is touching. And it's not just a Western problem in the U.S. It's a worldwide, universal problem that everywhere you find a human heart, you'll find man bent towards, inclined towards disrespect. And in our text this morning, the reason we put these three chapters together is that God makes it clear that for his people, for the people of God... They should be characterized as a caring community that are characterized by respect. And we see that in in several, I'll give you seven this morning, seven aspects of Israel's life as a nation that have direct application for us as the people of God, the church today. And so if you have your Bibles, if you take them open to Deuteronomy chapter 23... As I've done every week, I'll get a a bit of a recap in case you're new to Poplar Spring or or haven't been with us in a while. We're walking through the book of Deuteronomy together, asking God to show us from this text that was written to Israel, actually was preached to Israel, what he would have for us to learn today. And so what we see in Deuteronomy is that Moses has been told by God that he will not be allowed to go into the promised land. It's a result of his own sin. It's the consequences of his own sin. And so as a result, he's giving them one final charge, one final sermon. It's his farewell sermon as they go into the promised land with Joshua, their new ruler, their new leader. And as they go, he gives them uh, a history lesson. He teaches them about their past and, and why they've sinned and how they've sinned and the consequences of those sins. And then he moves into what is really the bulk of Deuteronomy by giving them laws. He gives them rules, uh, standards that they should live by as the people of God once they enter into the land. And so that's the section of Deuteronomy that we're in now. And so we see in these laws that God has specific um, uh, expectations, stipulations for this covenant that he has with his people. And so though the details may change some in our day, though the context is different, and you'll read some of this and go, whoa, we don't don't do it like that anymore. The the principle, the heart of the issue is still very applicable for us as the church. And and what you'll see today in, in all seven of these is that God demands respect. Uh, in, every, in every facet of our lives. And so this morning in chapter 23, we'll first look at verses 1 through 8. 
And we'll see that God has expectations for respect in their public worship. Let's read together verses 1 through 8. No one whose testicles are crushed, whose male organ is cut off, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, because they, and, and because they, um, they hired Balaam, the son of Baor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all the day, all of your days forever. You shall not abhor Edom, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor uh, an Egyptian, because you are a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So there's a phrase in those eight verses that should have stood out to you. Uh, the assembly of the Lord, that phrase is used six times in eight verses. So whatever the Lord is saying to Israel and to us today, it has to do with their assembly and ours. And so the assembly of the Lord for them meant their gatherings for worship. It could have been their festivals. It could have been times for the reading of the law, um, which is the, the word of God, the Pentateuch for them. Um, these included times when they would, they would, as the whole family of God, the whole family, uh, covenant family of God, would gather together for public times of worship. And they were, they were all part of the full covenant um, living um, in Israel. So there were people at, at any given time living in Israel among them or when they were in the wilderness even traveling that were among them that were not a full member of the covenant of God. They were people from other nations, but they lived at peace with Israel. God's saying there's a distinct group here that are the people of God, the covenant family of God, and for them, when they gather and worship, there's some folks that are not allowed to be a part of that. And so in, in these eight verses, we see three groups in particular. We'll mention them. Number one, verse one, eunuchs. So castration, either by cutting or by crushing, uh, was a practice in many Near Eastern religions, many Near Eastern cultures. So the, the pagan cultures surrounding Israel would do this, and it was associated with their pagan worship. And God's calling Israel be, be distinct. Don't do that. Um, and, and we also see in it that God is showing Israel that he's concerned with wholeness. The idea here is that he's concerned for Israel to have respect for God's design and creation. He created them male and female. He created them to procreate, to fill the earth and subdue it. Going all the way back to Genesis and his original command to Adam and Eve. And so by doing this, crushing or cutting off the male organ, as the text says, they were having a lack of respect. They were having disregard for what God had created. As a result, they're not to be in the public worship gathering with the covenant people of Israel. They could be among you. You should have peace with them, but they're, they're, they're separate from the gathered body of Israel. Second group that you see there in verse 2, children of forbidden marriage. If you have a King James, King James translation, you see that a stronger word is actually used in that verse uh, for children born out of wedlock, uh, a, a, ver, a word that we really won't say with small ears around because it's not an inappropriate word if it's used correctly, but we don't want it to be used inappropriately. But the word means more than just a son or daughter born out of wedlock. The idea here extended. It's the, it's the Hebrew word memzer, and it actually extends to not only those born out of wedlock, but those that might have been born as a result of incest or uh, those that might have been born um, 
uh, to pagan marriages. God had commanded them not to intermarry with these pagan religions. And if they did, the children of those marriages were not allowed to be a part of this full covenant family of God. Then the third group you see there are certain foreigners, verses 3 through 8. It gives some different commands for different groups of people. First, Ammon and Moab. Now, remember back to chapters 2 and 3, we've already talked about these two groups. These two tribes were the, um, the descendants of the incestuously conceived sons of Lot. So Lot had two daughters, and they decided, hey, let's go get dad drunk, and then we'll go in and sleep with him, and we'll bear children. That's wrong. That's sinful. As a result, Ammon and Moab are born, and these nations are brought up. These tribes are brought up. And, uh, and so there's, there's that disqualifier, again, pointing back to the last one, forbidden marriages, incest being a reason they're, they're breaking that violation, but then it goes further. God gives more reasons. As if that were not enough, he says, hey, they, they also didn't help you in your time of need. Remember when you were coming out of Egypt and you needed bread and water and they didn't help you out? But if that's not enough, if those two reasons are not enough, he says there's actually more. They actually hired Balaam, the militant false prophet, and they tried to put a curse on you, but God turned that into blessing. You see the guilt there that's just, just compounding for these two groups? He says this prohibition, you, you can't uh, allow them to be a part of your full covenant family that gets together for worship, for public worship. Now, this didn't apply to individuals. I mean, we know that looking back, this was a, this was a prohibition for the nation of Moab and the nation of, 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 of Ammon. But there were even individuals in those groups that, that God would still uh, do a work with and, and rescue. We see this throughout the Old Testament. That just because they're not part of Israel didn't mean that God had abandoned. We see Rahab from Jericho. She was not an Israelite, and God used her. Uh, in an incredible way, we see Uriah the Hittite, not an Israelite, but God used him. And so this was simply stating that as a nation, these groups would not be allowed to be a part of Israel's national worship gathering, the full covenant people of God. And then it moves into even some less restricted individuals, uh, Edom and Egypt. You see there that their, their prohibition was only three years, not a full ten years. The idea there when it says ten years was actually a prohibition forever. You see that back in verse 3. That it says, for ten generations or forever. That's kind of what that meant for the Hebrews. But that's not the case with the Egypt, uh, Egyptians and the Edomites. Theirs is only a three-year prohibition. So what, what does this mean for us as the church today? I mean, this was what God was saying to Israel as a, as a covenant nation. But what about his covenant people, the church today? Well, in one sense, everything has changed. When Christ came, when Christ came upon this earth and lived a perfect life, died upon the cross for sinners and rose from the dead, he established a new covenant, a new covenant with his church, the people of God, by his blood. And under this new covenant, he welcomes all into the worship gathering. There is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction of these, of these commandments that were excluding people anymore from the gathered worship of the people of God. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We would encourage, actually plead with, and urge anyone who will come to come through those doors and hear the word of God preached because we believe that in this moment, as the people of God lift up the name of Christ in worship, and as the, the scriptures are taught, they have the power to transform lives and that the Spirit uses the word of God to save souls. And so we would welcome anyone to come. So instead of prohibiting those that have blurred gender roles by crushing or cutting, we would welcome anyone to Gender roles not excluded. Please come and hear the word of God and repent and believe the gospel. In another sense, some things stay the same. As Christ has changed everything, there's still some things, though, that we would, uh, that we would make exclusive. So though our worship gatherings are work open to anyone, though our Bible studies, our growth groups should be open to anyone and everyone, our membership is not. 
And here's the difference. So for us as Baptists, we believe in regenerate church membership. We believe that for you to be a part of the number here, to be the membership of Poplar Spring Baptist Church, that you must be a believer. You're not grandfathered in. You don't get in just because you've been here for 20 years. You don't get in just because mom and dad were members. You must be a professing believer in Jesus Christ, someone who's been saved by Christ. And we see that in baptism. Not that baptism saves you, but that baptism is the symbol of, of what's happened internally in your heart. That when we're baptized, we're saying God has regenerated. He's given me a new heart. And that baptism is what brings us into this covenant family. And so though we would welcome anyone to this worship gathering, we don't welcome just anyone into our membership. God said that that is to be the people of God, the people that have covenanted together. And so we see some of these things that that God's changed everything in Christ But there's still some wisdom in the way we think through uh, the leadership of the church and who is the church, the gathered body of God. And so we respect the gathering for worship. We respect the gathered community of God that is the local church and its membership. It's his bride. And we see this in the New Testament. The New Testament apostles and leaders knew who was among their number. They knew who the church was. They had a membership, if you will, because they wanted to shepherd them well. They were responsible for those souls. And we would say the same thing today. It's his bride. It's the church of God. Let's continue, verses 9 through 14. You see, secondly, that not only respect in public worship, but they had respect in private matters. Look at verses 9 through 14. When you're encamped against your enemies, so the idea there, they're they're encamped, they're military, they're going off to a military uh, battle, and so they're in a military camp. When you're encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If a man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp, and he shall not come inside the camp. But when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the the sun sets, he may come inside the camp. Verse 12, "You, you shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel or shovel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give you up among, uh, give give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy, so that He may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. As if last week wasn't tough enough, right? With polygamy and divorce, and on top of that, stoning children. Now we have these bathroom issues that we have to deal with, right? And so, you ever heard the saying, "Cleanliness, "Cleanliness is next to godliness." Well, these laws demonstrate that there may be a little more truth to that than we at first realized. The section begins, verse 9b and verse 14b, it ends with this principle that Israel should remain pure. Now, the cases here are private issues, things that happen behind closed doors, actually not doors in their case, but things that no one else would have necessarily even known about, right? Private things that no one, the public, shouldn't have known about. They could not expect the blessing of God here, in their case, protection and military victory, right, without obedience in these private areas. And so this emphasizes to us that God desires purity in our lives for the people of God, even when people are not watching. So that's integrity, right? Doing the right things even when no one else would know about it. And he gives two examples. Number one, verse 10 and 11, nighttime omission. Without going into graphic detail here, this is not necessarily a moral failure. It could simply be uh, ceremonial uncleanliness. So remember, this is a difference for Israel. They could be ceremonially unclean without being full of sin. 
It just meant that they were not ceremonially clean. Um, so it could be simply urinating at night in the camp instead of going outside to do it or in your sleep. Uh, it could have other implications that we won't go into uh, in this setting. Either way, as a result of either one of those scenarios, the people of God here were impure and God demanded purity in the camp. Second example, look at verses 12 through 14. Where do you go? Number two, right? In a military camp, you don't have adequate latrines, and so you designate a place outside, you dig a hole, and you cover it up. There are obvious hygienic benefits from abiding by this law, but those hygienic benefits are secondary to what's really going on here. Look at verse 14. God walks in the midst of your camp. Therefore, be holy. So that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away. God's command to, to, to Moses here that he's commanding the Israelites is that they should have purity in private matters because God said so. And that was enough. Could they get away with not digging a hole to go to the bathroom? Probably. They probably didn't have a potty police that was watching each person to make sure they were doing it correctly. The point was that God knew. That's what verse 14 is saying. God knew. He's walking in your midst. He knows what you're doing in private matters. So in private matters, be respectful of this caring community that God's called you to be. God expects no less in a day with indoor plumbing. Though we may not do things like they did it here, he demands purity in our private lives. And there are incredible applications for that all throughout our lives. So behind closed doors, how are you doing, brother and sister? When no one else is not watching, when, when you could get away with it and no one else would know, how are you doing in, in areas of purity? And then look at for us. God demands our obedience in this area as well, but he doesn't just walk in our midst as he's told Israel in verse 14. He lives in our hearts. <laughs> he knows our hearts. I pray for each one of us that he would not see anything indecent among us, right? That's what the text says. Look at number three. Verses 15 through 25, respect in personal values. So not just respecting your public worship and your private time that no one else would know about, but in your personal values, in your morals, in your ethics, in your personal values that you hold to, you should have respect for uh, God and people. Look at verse 15 through 16. You see in this uh, five scenarios. We'll, we'll hit them real quickly. Uh, an escaped slave. Someone has escaped and they find refuge in Israel. You should provide for them a place of escape and a place of refuge so that they can live wherever they want. The text says live wherever suits him. And so in that we see complete freedom. This slave has, been, uh, has, 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 has escaped from his master and you're to provide refuge for him. And this was completely different from all the other cultures around them. The law code of Humurabi. It was, a, it was a law code that existed at this time in another, in another culture. It would have commanded them to be beaten or even their lives taken. The death sentence for escaped slaves. And also for the one who harbors a slave, he's to be severely punished as well. God says, don't be like that. If someone escapes, they've, they've, been, they've, they've, they've found freedom. You should provide that freedom for them and actually give them a part of your land so they can live free from their master. Verse 17 and 18. No cult prostitutes. Prostitution was a violation of sexual ethics for Israel in any case. But the idea that, uh, again, these cult prostitutes would prostitute themselves as a way to worship their gods, this idea was abhorrent to God. Israel was called to be different and distinct from this. Number uh, Verse 19 and through 21, no interest loans. This sounds incredibly foreign to us, right? We get excited when uh, interest rates go below like 4%. We're like, oh, man, they're at an all-time low. We should go buy a house. We don't really need one, but we should buy one because interest rates are so low right now. This was foreign to them. God commanded them not to have any interest. 
As a brother and sister in Christ, you should, you should just give loan. And, and yeah, they should pay it back, but there shouldn't be interest. And only in modern history has this flipped. Again, the idea here is that the strong, the lender, should not be taken advantage of the weak, the borrower. Verse 21 through 23, making vows before the Lord. In their worship in this day, Israel would have said, if God will produce this, fill in the blank, then I will donate this, fill in the blank, to the poor or whatever the case may be, some other cause in Israel. And Moses is saying here, if you make a vow like that before the Lord, then you keep it. If you don't keep it, you will incur guilt for breaking your word, for breaking your vow. And this was entirely voluntary. You didn't have to make these vows before the Lord, but people did as a way to worship the Lord. And you see here, there's no consequences mentioned for those that don't make vows. The only, the only consequence there is for the one that would break his vow. Israel, the Israelite, for the Israelites, their word was their bond at all times. God demanded integrity in their speech. If you say something, do it. There's all kind of application there for us. Again, all of this pointing back to the idea that God re, uh, demands respect in our personal values and the way we uh, think and work and our integrity. And then finally, the, the fifth one there, verses 24 and 25, eating from a neighbor's garden. Right? This demonstrates to us the priority of needs over rights. In our day, what would be considered theft, going in and eating someone else's produce, was actually made possible because, because it allowed for the needs of the, the less fortunate to be met. Um, and, but there's limits, right? You see that even in the text as you're walking through it. You can eat from the garden, but don't bring a basket. Don't bring a sickle. Don't harvest the food as if it's your own. If you're hungry, you can eat it, but it's not yours. Don't, don't harvest it and take it for yourself. The idea here was that Israel was called to love God and to love their neighbor. And again, there's practical application in this for us. Are we willing to give up some of our, our comforts or maybe even some of our rights for the needs of others, for our neighbor? The point is that Israel was being called by God to have respect in their personal values. And they, they demonstrated that by the way they loved one another, the way they treated one another. This idea continues in chapter 24. If you look at verses 1 through 7, you see our fourth point there, that God called Israel to have respect for their neighbors and their neighbors' possessions as a caring society should, right? And so the idea in these uh, seven verses, verses uh, 1 through 7, is that the people of God were called to respect others and their belongings. And they weren't subject to the whims of whoever felt like they should do whatever with their neighbor's possessions. Look at the four examples that we are given. Verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house... And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, so man, she's, she's really working her way through, right? And puts uh, it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For, this, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." So the first point we see here in demonstrating our respect for neighbor and possessions is dealing with the category of divorce and remarriage. Jesus points out in Matthew chapter 19 that this command, he's pointing back to Deuteronomy, this idea of giving a certificate of divorce. This command was not a provision for divorce, but it regulated instances where divorce already takes place. 
Does that make sense? So God's not telling, I mean, Jesus is not telling them in Matthew 19, here's how you do it. Here's a, a step-by-step guide for having a divorce. No, God's giving them commandments here that regulate their, their actions when a divorce does take place. The law provides the details for after the divorce. Uh, and so the thrust of the law you see in verse 4. You have all these details that sets up the scenario, but then the, the final clause in verse 4 is the heart of the issue. A man may not remarry a wife after he's divorced her if she's been married to another man and then divorced him or widowed from him. What's the point here? Well, it's a protection for the woman. It's a protection for the wife in the text. Now think about this. She's, she's now through this, this, this law, through this rule, she's being protected from being passed around like some type of marital football. From one you know, irresponsible man to the next irresponsible man. And then he decides he wants her back and so he can just take her back at any time. The first husband couldn't divorce her and then think, well, I'll, you know, I'll just get her back one day if, if I want. This law prohibited that. The certificate, again, was a protection for the woman. It, it protected her from being accused of adultery. Without the certificate, if she's uh, having marital relationships or is married to another man, then somebody could accuse her of adultery, which is the death sentence in this culture. Again, the idea here is that Israelite men were expected to treat their neighbors, in this case their wife, their closest neighbor, with respect and honor. So what about us? What about us, Popular Spring? How would our wife or our husband describe us and our attitude towards them? Now certainly, I don't think we're going to be in this situation, but exactly like they are, and it's a little bit different in our culture as far as certificates and what all is required there legally, but in our homes... The principle still applies. How are we treating our spouse, our neighbor that lives in the same house with us, in the same room with us? That's the principle. I think we see at work here. Second, verse 5, a sabbatical from war. Verse 5, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. So in a caring society, in the type of society that God's called his people to be, Israel should have respect for marriage and newlyweds. And this was the, the normal rule of life would have required men to fight in battles for uh, the Israelites to be able to go in and take possession of the land God had promised them. But even those expectations, those normal rules of life were set aside from time to time and in certain circumstances. This was one of them. This case of a newlywed, of newly married couple, uh, would, would be exempt from serving in military battle. Others in the community would have to assume their responsibilities, would have to fight in their place, would have to fight uh, even harder because of the lack of that person not being there, but it meant that he could stay at home with his new wife. They respected marriage. They had a, a care and concern for this new, uh, newly married couple. The King James Version here says that he shall cheer up his wife, wife which he hath taken. That's the idea there, that he can be at home with his wife. And also at play here is that this year would give them time to start a family, to become parents, so that they could continue their family line. Again, fulfilling the promise of God for people and land. So God's protecting his promise by making this rule for them to be able to stay at home. Question for us, Poplar Spring, are we guarding our marriages with this type of priority? That we wouldn't let work or things from, from, from around us, extracurricular activities, recreation, uh, come in the way of our marriages. Are we protecting one another's marriages? Do we think about everyone else's marriages in the room with that kind of way? Do we fight for one another's marriages? So we see someone struggling, maybe in their marriage, but maybe just physically or, or financially. And we would, we would step in and say, brother, let me help you so that you can love your wife well. 
so that your marriage can be protected and fought for. That's a responsibility of the people of God, that we should have that kind of respect for neighbor and possession. Next example, verse 6, taking a millstone. Verse 6, no one shall take a mill or an upper stone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. Israel was permitted to take collateral. We just mentioned that they were not allowed to take interest in loans, but they were allowed to take collateral to enforce the payment of a debt. But some things were off limits, and this shows you one of them. They couldn't take a millstone, even one half of a millstone. In this day, these stones would be on top of one another, and they would rotate, uh, and they would grind the mill. And so to take one half of them was just like taking both of them because you couldn't grind what you needed to grind. And the, the NIV says that it would be taking their livelihood. I like the ESV a little better because it says you'd be taking their life because that's what you're doing. You're taking the way that they would put food on the table for their family. God sought to, in this command, clothe the commandment to respect neighbor and possession by giving a practical example. I think it could apply to anything in our day. Do we have respect for our neighbor and the quality of their life? Next example, verse 7, slave traders. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The most extreme example here, more threatening than um, stealing a person's possessions. Again, God's called them to be a caring society, and stealing possessions is bad. More extreme than that is the man who would steal another man, right? That's the extreme example. This person's given the death sentence because their callous disregard for the value of another person has caused them to treat another person as if they weren't a person, And God says, I won't tolerate it. I won't allow slavery like that to exist. And so don't do that. Don't steal your brother and sell him. And we see even in the scriptures that this is violated. So we see this in this command that God has called his people to have respect for one another and have respect for one another's possessions. How are we doing, Poplar Spring? Do we love one another enough to guard their stuff? I pray that we would. Do we love one another enough that we would sacrifice our own time and resources for our neighbor. Respect for neighbor and possessions. Look at number five, verses eight through 22. Respect for the dignity of life. So further than just his life or his stuff, respect the dignity of his life. You see in these verses five examples, and we'll hit them all briefly. Five examples whereby a man could demonstrate his respect for the dignity of life. Number one, verses eight through nine, in situations of leprosy. So not not only should they abide by the word of the priest, the priest has told them, you've got leprosy. This is what you have. This is how you should treat it. This is how it should be dealt with. So not only should they abide by what the priest says for hygienic reasons, there's, there's reasons, health reasons that they should abide by it. But look what's further. Verse nine, if you see verse nine there, there's a deeper point going on here. God says through Moses, remember Miriam. If you remember back, Miriam challenged Moses' authority as God's prophet. She led the people to challenge Moses' authority, and as a result, she was stricken with leprosy. And the point here is God saying, I will not deal lightly with those that challenge God's ordained authority, whether that's civic authority in our community, police officers, government leaders, or whether that's authority in the home. God expects his people to abide by authority. Why? Because it demonstrates our respect for the dignity of life. God's given authority, we should abide by it. Second thing, verse 10 through 13, collaterals in loans. This is the second time this comes up in our text. Look at verse 10. 
When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man whom you make the loan, uh, to whom you shall make the loan, shall bring the pledge out to you. So the concern for the poor, the weak in the scenario, extends here beyond what we've already seen. So not only is it not enough to, to, to not have commercial exploitation, right, a ban on interest loans. He's already said no interest loans. Not only is he protecting them from life-threatening collateral, which would have been like the millstone. You can't take what's necessary for his livelihood. Now it extends even further, and it protects an invasion of his privacy. Why? Because human dignity matters. Poverty robs a person of so much, but even the poor should be allowed to control what they still own, their home. And even in their home, they should be respected. They shouldn't just be invaded upon because they owe you something. The idea here is that you wait and you respect his home and let him come to you. It's the dignity of human life. Again, number three, verses 14 and 15, paying your workers. The text would tell us to pay them before sunset. Maybe uh, they're so poor there that they would need that day's earnings to pray, uh, pay for that evening's meal for their family. So pay them. We may have business owners in the room, and this, this morning you would say, well, I don't, I don't, we don't do our, 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 our payment like that. We don't pay our workers in those type every day. The principle, though, still applies. If you're someone who owes someone a payment, whether they've worked for you or whether you've bought something from them, pay what you owe. Don't prolong the payment. Don't let your convenience of not paying be making them sacrifice on the other end. Pay your debts. Number four, look at verse 16. No death penalty for another's sins. Fathers can't be killed for the sins of their children. Children can't be killed for the sins of their father. To do so would be a violation of the life of that person, a violation of dignity. Again, the law code of Humurabi. This was another law code. Like this is the law code for De- Deuteronomy. is a law code for the people of God. The law code of Humurabi in that day would have said that if a builder builds you a house and that house falls for whatever reason and it lands on the homeowner's son, then the homeowner now has the right to go and kill the builder's son. Life for life. And God's saying it shouldn't be like that. We should have more concern, more respect for the dignity of life. Don't practice like those other cultures do. And then fifth and finally, speaking to the respect for human dignity, verses 17 to 21, care for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. The alien, the widow, and the orphan. These three peoples are the lowest of the lowly on the social scale in Israel. These three groups were often the most poor, and they needed to be defended because human dignity matters. And we see this in in several different ways. Verse 17, don't pervert justice towards them. Just because they're orphan, widow, or alien, sojourner, don't pervert justice. Verse 17, again, don't take the cloak of a widow as collateral. We've already seen you can take collateral and you can even take a cloak. It's mentioned in verse 13, but not the cloak of a widow. They're protecting those that are uh, the weak in the culture. Verses 19 through 21, don't harvest every last bit of grain or, or your crop. Leave some on the bush, leave some on the tree, so that these three groups, the alien, the widow, and the orphan, can come behind you and pick through the leftovers. Why? Because if if doing that will keep them from having to become a beggar, then it's demonstrating that we have a respect for the dignity of life. Leave some on the bush for them. That's not so much to ask. It preserves human dignity. Chapter 25. Point number six. 
We see this continue, this idea of respect in all spheres of life. Verses 1 through 16 of chapter 25 continues by demonstrating a respect for the vulnerable. And we see that in five scenes, five different scenarios whereby God demonstrates that man, his people, the people of God, should respect the vulnerable. Verses 1 through 3, the punishment of the guilty. There's a dispute that's brought up. It's brought before the judges, whether that's a civil dispute or a criminal dispute. Whatever the case may be, someone's being accused and the case is being brought before judges. And that judge decides that one of the men is particularly guilty. The convicted man is vulnerable at that moment to an angry crowd, maybe even a mob of people that have uh, set out to see that he's punished. That's certainly right and good. Or, if nothing else, he's at least vulnerable to the accuser, the one that is accusing him of the crime, even if no one else is gathered uh, to pronounce judgment. So that vulnerable, even guilty man should be respected and protected. And you see the law there giving um, rules to, pr- to protect him. It says that he should lie down in the presence of the observers. right? And so even in that, we see that he can't be brought out behind the woodshed. Why? Because behind the woodshed, there's no accountability. You can beat him to a pulp and no one would ever know it. So he's got to be uh, brought in front of the presence of observers for accountability. And he's beaten with lashes, but even the lashes have a cap. You can't exceed 40. Why? Because to do so would be a degradation of that person's life, a degradation of his uh, physical body before your eyes, the text says, which makes it even more apparent that what's happening to him is inhumane. It's not right. The point is that the vulnerable here, even the guilty, should be respected and protected. You don't kick a man while he's down. That's the idea here. So it causes us to think through in our responses to people, even when they've violated us, even when we know they're guilty, maybe they've even admitted they're guilty, or maybe they've done it in a public way and everyone knows they're guilty. How do we respond to them, church? We should have respect even towards the guilty, the vulnerable. Number two, a second group of vulnerable Um, Look at verse 4. Take care of your animals. (laughs) You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. That seems, as you're reading through this chapter, and we didn't read this chapter together, but if you read this chapter in one sitting, you get to verse 4 and you're like, that's really strange. It even seems a bit out of place, but that's not the case. In this day, an ox would have been walking around and around uh, on a treading floor, treading out this grain. And it would stop and it would eat some from time to time when it got hungry. And farmers would often muzzle the ox so that it couldn't eat the grain, so that they could have more crop. And God's telling them, don't do that. Instead, let the ox eat a little bit. He's providing it for you. He's doing this work for you. Let him eat a little bit. So there's the literal command, take care of your animals. I think that's applicable here. We should take, if if we have pets, if we have animals, if we have work animals, we should take care of them. But there's deeper meaning here as well. And Paul shows us that deeper meaning in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, Paul uses this text twice. 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5. And both times he uses it, he has a certain point. He quotes this text. But his point is that if God cares this much about a stinky old ox that's used for work, I mean, think about in our day, that's like a tractor. I mean, that's what it was for them. If God cares that much about your tractor or your ox... How much more does he care for a human being that's created in his image? That's the idea Paul's getting at here. We should care for the vulnerable. That's the point. Verses 5 through 10 show us point number 3. In a leveret marriage. Again, we're just going to hit this quickly. There's a lot of details here that we're not covering. But this law protected the family that had no male heir to inherit the land. Again, remember this is the promise of God. To give them people and to give them land. 
And for a situation where a husband dies and and a woman is left a widow without a son, without an heir, that name would be erased from Israel. And so God is giving the situation here where a brother-in-law, that's the leveret part, in Hebrew that's what that means, is obligated to take care of the wife for producing a son to be an heir. If he did not, and again, remember our context is different, We we don't abide by these commands as Israel was supposed to, but if he did not, she could bring him to court. If you continue reading the text, that's what, she, what it says. She could bring him to court, take off his sandal, and spit in his face. I'm not making this up. This is what the text says. It's an incredibly strange scene for us, but the point is straightforward. The brother was obligated to care for the vulnerable, in this case, his brother's widow. And he was, he was to provide for her what the brother could no longer provide, an heir. And if he didn't, the man's family becomes known as the house of the unsandaled man. It's a really incredible and strange practice and idea, but it's clear the idea here is he's to care for the vulnerable. Number four, also strange. Verse 11, no shots below the belt. When men fight with one another, this is verse 11, when men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand Your eyes shall have no pity. So the situation is two men are fighting. We don't know why, but they're fighting. And one's being handled, right? The other guy is taking it to him. And the wife comes in and wants to help her husband. That's a natural reaction. But what she does is violently grasp below the belt, which is not okay. The intent there of hurting the opponent so that he'll stop fighting her husband. But what she's really done is she's broken the same prohibition as the sandalless man, right? She has kept, by doing this violent act, uh, caused a situation where he can no longer have children. That's a violation of the command that God has promised them land and people. That's why God would say, that man's in a vulnerable situation. He's in the middle of a fight. Don't do that to him. Men, I hope none of our wives are ever put in that situation. I hope you would not be fighting and making your wife be put in that situation. Obviously, the context is a bit different for us, but the principle is still the same. Love your neighbor even when they're vulnerable and don't take advantage of them. Fair weights and measures, verses 17 through 19. That's our final example here of providing for the vulnerable. In this context, they would have traded and bartered for goods. Money wasn't as big a deal then. Trading and bartering was, and so weights and measuring cups were important. And God's saying here, don't have two sets of weights, two sets of measuring cups, right? So that you use the heavy weights when you're, when you're getting goods and the light weights when you're giving away goods. You see the advantage there. You would be getting more than you'd be giving out. The idea here is that the buyer here in this situation or the seller is trusting you and your weights to be accurate. So don't take advantage of them. So in all of these, God's calling his people to take care of the vulnerable There's a thousand different applications for us in this. So in your growth groups this week, talk through what does that look like in our day? What does that look like for us as the people of God today in the church to care for the vulnerable? People that are in situations where they're struggling. Our last point, verses 17 through 19. Respect the process of discipline for oppressors. As if these examples and these warnings about protecting the vulnerable were not enough, the chapter ends in two verses, or three verses, that gives an illustration for when Israel was in a vulnerable situation and God protected them. So it's almost like God saying, here's what happened, here's what I did, here's what you should do. As a result, look at verses 17 through 19. Remember what Amalekite did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary. And cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. 
and he did not fear God. Therefore, the Lord your God has given you, uh, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, and the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalekite from under heaven, and you, you shall not forget. And the Amalekites here intentionally struck Israel as they were coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. And not just that, they struck the ones who were at the back of the party, the ones who were maybe sick or weak or tired from walking. Maybe those with even children that they were having to provide for and care for. And, and, the, and the Amalekites struck them and destroyed them, taking advantage of their vulnerability. And God's saying, when you get into the land and you become an established people, you wipe them out. And don't just wipe them out. Make sure that there's no memory of them. In that, we see that God has no tolerance for the, the vulnerable being taken advantage of. And so, Poplar Spring Church family, this provides us with incredible avenues, uh, avenues of application. God has called us to be a people that take care of the vulnerable, the weak, the ones in society that are marginalized or disenfranchised. And so this morning, the text this morning, it has some scenarios that are quite different from our day and age, quite different from our culture, but the, the point is still the same, that God causes people to have respect. And that, that reaches over all spheres of our culture, our business life, our home life, our community life, our church life. And so this morning, church family, we, we're called to think about how we live as the people of God in a culture that is increasingly disrespectful. I pray that we would think through those things. And even in our growth groups this week, talk about what that looks like. You see even in your application guide, your, your, in your notes there, some, some questions to think through as you're in your growth groups or small groups this week. If you're not in one of those, just to pray through, what does this look like in my context for me on a daily basis? To have a respect and a love for those around us. In a dark world that's increasingly darker and darker every day, this is what the people of God should be characterized by. A caring society, a family that loves one another and loves those outside of the family with respect. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And God, we thank you for your word. And even sometimes when it seems strange to us and different because of how different these cultures are, God, we thank you that you're an unchanging God and that you expect us to live for you and to love you in a way that it's transparent to the world. And so, God, for every believer in this room this morning, God, I pray that we'd be thinking through how do we do that as the people of God? How do we care for the weak and the vulnerable? God, I pray this morning, though, that if there's, no, if there's someone here this morning that's never trusted you, that they wouldn't be thinking about these issues until they think about the most important issue, and that's surrendering their life to you. God, you've called us to be your people, and you've given your son in the blood of Christ so that we can have access to you and relationship with you. So God, as we respond this morning, do a work in every heart. God, if, if someone's here that doesn't know you, I pray today would be the day that they would repent of sins and, and trust you and follow you with their lives. God, if there's believers in this room this morning that haven't thought through some of these things, that we would think through, how do we show respect? How do we be a caring society in a dark world? Father, we love you. Be with us as we respond now through a time of singing and worship. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand this